All right, good morning. Welcome back to the five pillars of the Reformation. Uh, we are on pillar number four, um, sola fide. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. I'm excited about worshiping and excited about uh, spending time together as a church and playing some soccer today. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time as we consider um, this important doctrine and um, pray that uh, you'd be glorified in all that we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, faith alone, specifically justification by faith alone, um, Luther said. I'm sounding for the, for the recording. Now I ruined it, but I sound, I'm sounding like I know what I'm talking about when 10 minutes ago I didn't know Luther said this. But anyways, um, Luther said that justification by faith is the article by which the church stands or falls. Um, our definition for today, again, coming from the Cambridge Declaration, we reaffirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. We deny that justification rests on any merit to be found in us or upon the grounds of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us or that an institution claiming to be a church that denies or condemns sola fide can be recognized as a legitimate church. So this is a non-negotiable doctrine according to our um, brothers in the faith. So uh, what it means, three words that I underline there, probably could underline five or six, but um, one being satisfaction, I didn't underline that, and we're actually going to talk about that in the sermon today, uh, propitiation, what that means. So... Um, but justification is defined as an act of God whereby He pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight through the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. A um, number of scriptures, um, especially the letters, um, works of Paul, which really unpack how Christ's death and resurrection is applied to us. And um, that legal um, work of God is, is defined, uh, or is called justification. That's how we define it. So there's an exchange that takes place. Um, and the point being, we're receiving Christ's person and work through faith. Um, we don't receive it by works. It's not injected into us, which is kind of the Catholic view. Um, it, is, it is a gift. It is a free gift, and it's just given. Um, so we can look at some of these. I mean, I just put these references here for you all to look at later. Galatians 3, Romans 3. Uh, we're going to talk about Romans 3 also in the sermon today. So if you're listening to this recording, you should also listen to the sermon from May 16th, 2021, because I'm going to, I'm going to deal with a lot of this today. Okay, um, faith 
is, uh, is a word that we throw around a lot in the church and just in humanity. I mean, every religion talks about faith to some extent. Um, but it's a very easy word to misunderstand. Okay, And we spend a lot of time in this church trying to unpack what faith means and what does it mean because it's so easy to misunderstand. It's a churchy word, religious word, but it, it has a very important meaning. It's more than just believing that something is true. Um, and if you think about that logically, I mean, James 2 is a great place to kind of see that where James writes, you know, look, even, even the demons believe this doctrine. They, they know what is true. They accept it in some ways even more than we do, but they don't love God. Right, so they they know the truth, but they don't. They're rebelling against the source of truth. So it, faith can't just be checking the box. Yes, I believe these things. Right, so it's not just accepting as true the Apostles' Creed. Faith is also resting in that knowledge and receiving that knowledge. It's trusting it, trusting the source of it. Um, and that, not just assent, but that trust is the instrument of justification, okay? That I am receiving the work of God. I'm, I'm resting in it. I'm not just affirming my, my belief in it, okay? Um, it's the instrument or the conduit. It's not the ground of it. So this is the confusing part, too. Um, faith is... is not a work, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's a, a gift. Um, even, even the thing by which we receive the thing that God has done is still a gift. Um, Hebrews 11 and 12, Ephesians 2, um, kind of unpack this idea. So uh, I've heard it described as like, you know, there's power... Uh, electricity available at this outlet and um, if I plug a radio into the outlet the power cord is the conduit by which the electricity gets to the machine that I'm trying to use that conduit is like faith um, it, it doesn't have power and it doesn't you know, actually accomplish what the radio accomplishes. It's just, it's just a conduit, and that's kind of how we think about faith. Okay, so faith is uh, the instrument by which God applies justification, but it's not the ground of it. And then this word "imputed" I underlined because it's uh, that's a confusing word. Um, so it means to credit to another person to. Um, to, to put into someone's account something that they didn't actually earn or, you know, to, that they didn't, um, they didn't actually accomplish. So we're laying, God is laying the responsibility or the guilt on Christ, um, in, in his case, falsely or unjustly. Um, but he willingly took it, and then Jesus took credit for our sins, right? And we take credit for, before God for his righteousness. So that exchange was an imputation. Um, forensically, uh, or sorry, existentially I'm guilty, but forensically I'm, I'm righteous. 
so in legal in legal terms uh, our guilt was laid at the cross it's just a simple way to say it um The reason that word is important and the reason they talk about it's not an infusion of Christ's righteousness. Um, In Catholic doctrine, it's described almost like a shot in the arm, like, you know, Jesus, faith in Jesus gets us into God's kingdom and he gives us this like shot of of righteousness that kind of motivates us to, you know, to keep, keep doing the things that God wants us to do. And that's we're basically saying that's not an appropriate way to think about it. It's not a biblical way to think about it. Um, you know, the work of Christ purely is the ground of our justification. Okay? Um, and so, faith then is not a ground or the ground of our justification. Um, because what that does is it turns faith into a work. Um, and this is super easy to do, especially in the modern American church, post-revival and revivalism. Um, because we have basically been teaching people, you know, we, we've put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the act of faith or the moment of faith, um, which looks like in most people's minds, especially in our culture, it looks like I made the decision to walk down the aisle, to pray the prayer, to say the words, to sign the card. I stepped out on faith. Right? I did this. Therefore, I'm saved. Um, and we even call it getting saved. Like, I had to do that to get saved. And that's... We actually... In, in a lot of our church backgrounds, we associate salvation more with that action than we do with what Jesus actually accomplished. Um, and certainly we are saved in a moment. Certainly God can and has and does use those moments to actually, you know, for conversion to take place. But the confusion can become that I am actually resting on my own faith as an act or a work by which... Jesus took notice of me, right? And we've even confused it by taking the, um, in, in one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus talks about standing at the door knocking. And he's actually talking about the collective fellowship of the church. He's basically saying, you've put me outside the church. Um, what you're doing is not really with me. It's something else, Right. But we've taken that illustration and we've applied it to salvation. So you'll hear people say things like, you know, Jesus is standing on the door of your heart and knocking. And you just got to open it up and let him in. You know, and we've even co-opted that language of I've let Jesus into my heart or I pray for Jesus to come into my heart. Well, Jesus is not sitting outside wringing his hands hoping that we will let him in. (laughs) When he's ready to knock that house down, the tornado's going to knock that house down, right? And so um, that just that just sounds way too dependent on us producing something that is necessary for salvation. And we really don't contribute to it. And so that's why it would be inappropriate to think of faith in that way. Um, 
there's also a confusion even after salvation, after conversion, where you've got this relationship between faith and works, and what does that mean? And James talks about faith without works is dead. And so um, the confusion there rests in, okay, is faith real without works? But rather than thinking about it as like I'm cooking, I'm baking bread and I got to make sure to have some faith and some works or it's not going to be bread, right? That's not actually the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is like if faith is real, then there will be works. There will be a response. There will be... um, True faith will produce evidence. And so we think about work um, in the Christian life more as evidence of something that God is doing rather than um, like a necessary component of the recipe that I'm cooking for myself to produce. I don't know if that's a great illustration, but um, I'll let you all speak to that in a minute. Um, So... Let me read this little this quote by Robert Capon. Capon. I don't know how you say his last name. Um, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the, des- in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200-proof grace. <laughs> bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself up into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight, no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. I think I love that because I love whiskey. But um, but he's not even talking about whiskey. He's talking about like Everclear. <laughs> One sip of that and you know it's pure, right? Um, but, uh, you know, he's talking about monergism. He's talking about you know, there was one prime actor. There was one um, agent in my salvation, and it was it was God. It was not me. So, even the faith by which I receive it was a gift. All right. So, comments, questions. I have some questions, but I want to just kind of pause there and see if y'all have any thoughts or anything I didn't say well that I need to clarify. good to have so many people in Sunday school this morning. Thank you all for coming. Had to add some chairs. Breaking commandments. All right, so in what ways do Christians often become discontent with this kind of gospel? So what's the rub? Why do we have a hard time with justification by faith alone. 
Yeah, so Christian liberty and just fear that this doctrine will embolden people in their sin because, hey, salvation's a gift. I don't have to really work for it. So, I mean, if I'm saved, I'm saved. What's the difference? What's the big deal? What would be our response to that? Or better yet, what's the Apostle Paul's response to that? to that charge, that grace. Because that's exactly what the Jews were saying for a century is you're, tell, you're basically telling them to abandon the law. That the law doesn't matter. And Paul's like, no, I'm not saying that. That's, it's, uh, motivating factors are different. It's more of a, a manifestation. Your obedience to manifestation of gratitude and not check the box. Not the check the boxes are bad, but it wasn't the intent behind it. So I think it it gets murky though because it makes it makes introspection harder. Um, so I think the response is that you're, you're, you're the extent to which you're obeying what you believe to be what uh, you're supposed to be doing uh, out of fear versus out of gratitude and just that growth of fruit, you know, the, the fruit being brought forth. I think I'm talking in circles. But, uh, yeah, I don't think I was talking in circles anyway, but, you know, it's not, it's not checking, like, okay, I'm going to be joyful today. <laughs> I'm going to be grateful today. I'm not going to kick any of my kids. You know, although those are good goals to generally have, the attitude should be you're filled with a gratitude for what God's doing in your life and it's motivating you to share that love as a manifestation I should say manifestation of it but it's it's an expression of the joy that you have gratitude that you have rather than I'm going to do this 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 because that gets me over 40 points which is going to get me where I need to be by Thursday I can score that day yeah yep any other reasons why we might struggle with this? We talked about this a little bit last week, but just our culture being so performance-oriented that it, it, it can be difficult for us to accept the idea that not even God's grace, but even even my faith is a gift. Like I really just don't contribute anything. That just doesn't feel right to us in some ways. Um, yeah, because you, you don't have, it's hard because you don't have a barometer where you gauge how well you're doing. It's like, all right, well, I've been awake for a couple hours and uh, let's see, I didn't kill anybody. I yeah. didn't punch anybody in the nose. I didn't lie to anyone. So, hey, that's pretty good, you know. Whereas, how do you evaluate your faith? <laughs> you know, especially because there's so many different definitions what faith is floating around out there so it's a lot easier to have that scorecard so you can evaluate where you're at you know where you stand yep. rather than just standing on Christ you know? 
it can be hard for the you know to use the Jesus's parable, the prodigal son. It'd be really hard for the older brother to accept God's free gift of love. It can also be really hard for the younger brother to just believe that despite my failures, I'm really accepted. You know, um, surely the hammer's going to come down on me at some point. So, yeah. All right, churches often do ministry based on what people want to hear rather than letting the offensive gospel of Christ do its work. Can you think of any examples of that? Walking down the aisle from the Baptist church to the Uh-huh. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always get a kick out of when you drive by some of the old country churches and they say, hey, we're going to have a revival. It's going to be the third week of August when the Holy Spirit's confirmed. <laughs> we scheduled him. There's going to be a movement There's going to be. And we're not going home until a dozen people get saved. Yeah. Uh, I've been in some of those services, man, where we just keep singing. And we're going to keep on singing until somebody walks that aisle. Hey, you know what's funny? I, mean, I was, you know, God... God grabbed me by the by the throat and smacked me into awareness uh, in one of those ten kind of revival ish experiences in yep. Mexico and it's like uh, one of those hey put up your hand I see that hand I see that hand I see that hand you know and of course your your head's down your eyes are closed so you don't know when your hand is being seen so I didn't know if I was going to get skipped over and then have to do the thing all over again or what so I kept my head up the whole time you know uh, but it is, it is, yeah, it is much different than just communicating the truth in a prayerful way. And here, this is what this is what God has to say about it, and uh, it's the Holy Spirit's job to do this. I'm conveying the messages empowered by the Spirit, rather than trying to figure out how to really reach that one. How do you really reach that one? Gotta get that one. You know, I had a friend that quit seminary. He ended up going back to to a reform seminary, but he was at a he was at a non-reform seminary, and he was taking a class on evangelism. And the professor basically told them in the first week, "Your grade will be entirely dependent upon how many people come to Christ." No. Yeah. No. And so he realized really quickly that people were making stuff up. I mean, just like. Yeah, I mean, it was like we're gonna. What do you do? I mean, he was like, I quit. I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't understand that mentality and like that pressure of, you know, it's so contrary. I mean, we know it's foolishness to the Greeks. It smells bad. I mean, it's not, it's not made to be enticing. (laughs) Craziness. I, uh, I know another family that I talked to the dad recently. Um, they recently switched churches. They, they've been at this one church for a long time. And I don't know what happened, but they switched churches. And um, their kids had been baptized at the other church, grew up there, hear Jesus, whatever. But when they went to this new church, they, they basically, I mean, he didn't say it this way, but it sounds like they got pressure to rebaptize the kids. And he basically said, well, my kids weren't, 
they weren't they weren't really serious about it the first time. Like we, they, they, it means more to them now. It's only been like two years. Okay, so like, for instance, like from a, like a twelve to a fourteen year old, and so that's padding numbers. I mean, that's the only reason you would really want to do that is to make it look like we got more people saved in this church, right? It doesn't respect at all the discipleship process of the previous church. And even if you accept, you know, the Baptistic view of baptism, like, it's still like, why why are you re-baptizing these kids? But um, that's the idea. You think in the middle of the road they can start counting reaffirmations or something, you know, create some other thing. Yeah, something. Not necessarily baptism, but maybe an application of powders. <laughs> well, it's controversial with regard to water. Just throw powder, colored powder on people. I consider that a reaffirmation. You can apply it a lot of people quickly. Um, how should this doctrine? Shape our churches, our churches' ministry. So what? I mean, I, I think it, I think it reinforces the importance of teaching the truth and encouraging and supporting the family. You know, the church family. You know, you're not trying to get people to believe. You're teaching the word, and then you're growing and nurturing in the word. It's, I think it's a much more. Uh, focus on growing the body rather than getting the numbers. Mm-hmm. That's why I think you get a lot of people that are in the door because they took a bait, but they don't know what to do once they get in the door. Yeah, And then they've got the bumper sticker mentality and horrible theology and heads a mess and hearts hurting and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, there is an overcorrection in some of our churches where they never elicit a response from anyone on anything. Like, and I, I've been guilty of this at times, but like I try to at least towards the end of the sermon, and, and not necessarily every week, but like just hey, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, I mean, Jesus does like put it out there, but he's not like taking names, right? He's just like, and it should cause you to do something or to you know to respond. And so if if the spirits at work, then this is going to you know just kind of give the. The opportunity, yeah. but, but not, you know. It's not like benedictions over, all right, let's lunch. Yeah. You know, there should be some kind of gears grinding. Yeah. Just an awareness. I'm not I'm not just preaching to the saved. Um, I might very likely am always preaching to both crowds. So um this is just a general question that I threw in here at the end. Um, how important are theological con- con- convictions to most Christians, and how important should they be? They're not important. Yeah. I don't know those words. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, we, we're where we're at for a reason, right? Yeah. I mean, our denomination is a little bit more conscientious about the importance of theological convictions than many, many, many. I've had numerous arguments, not, or I shouldn't say arguments, numerous discussions with people 
even in our church that question like why do we have confessions and creeds and things like that and you know all I need is just my Bible and I trust God to speak to me and I was like so did Joseph Smith you know so did uh, Charles Russell founder of Jehovah's Witnesses okay you know um so did Ryrie. I mean, all these guys, I mean, they're, they're, I would rather you write down what you believe so that I can hold you accountable and you can hold me accountable. That's why you lumped uh, Ryrie in there. Like, <laughs> you know, I would, <laughs> I would rather, quickly, uh, yeah, I would rather, um, I would rather know, like, I would rather you know what I believe. And, and be able to hold me accountable to it. And I can tell you, I, I hold some things more loosely than others, like in the confession. Like I'm not, you know, a convinced cessationist, for instance, right? And so, like, there are, th- there are things that are uh, vital, and some things are less vital, but writing it down holds us accountable. Yeah. Um, it gives us some starting point, some jumping off point to know, okay, if you affirm these things and I affirm these things, we at least have some commonality here or or I know where we differ or I know you're not a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Otherwise, abandoning historical confessions of the church leaves you open to manipulation by the enemy and you end up making the same mistakes that we've already made in the past um, or new ones that are you know, not... Orthodox, so important to have the theological convictions. It, you know, and I think there's a there's a sense in which that's true for all Christians in their growing in growing in their faith. That there is an appreciation for doctrine. You know, for instance, I don't personally I don't think predestination is a doctrine for the lost. It's a doctrine for mature believers. Um, you you grow into an understanding of it. You don't just like come to Christ believing that, you know, typically. Um, and so there's a there's a patience there. There's a growth there. And I think it's all the more important for you know, pastors and elders and, you know, heads of families like to understand these things on a deeper level and to invest time in them. But um, but it is important. It's funny, like you talked about, like, a lot of churches Confessions, you know, but they'll have belief statements, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> they have a confession to the very small one. <laughs> it's like a yeah. confession light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, a lot of churches' confession is like R5 membership bounds. Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, that is a wide gate. I mean, the PCA doesn't have, we don't expect people to agree with our doctrine to become a member of the church. Yeah. But. There should be more. We should care about more as a church than just that. So, yeah. But people are so afraid, and that kind of goes back to the question too. Like, we're so worried about people coming and getting the numbers and having the, you know, having the the butts in the seats that we're we say as little as possible to create less conflict. Yeah. Um. So, but we've got to do the work of. You know, 
I, you know, I don't mind my people knowing I believe these, you know, these things to be true, but I don't think we should necessarily divide fellowship over it. And so, like, being comfortable in that tension, um, it's hard. It's hard to do sometimes, but it's it's necessary. And at times it can be difficult to not be a jerk about it too when you're right. in your case because you feel like it's a hill to die on. <clears throat> One more week. Thank you all for being faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace to us. Um, Thank you for the faith that you give us to believe these things are true. Help us in our theological convictions to grow, to mature. Um, Not that we be full of head knowledge and um, hardness of heart um, or ready to make conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but uh, may we be humbled by um, the truth and... um, encouraged by it, strengthened by it, renewed in our focus and our vision, reminded that we need you at every turn. And we pray these things also as we prepare to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.